Backworld Podcast number 118 for April 9th, 2008, sponsored by Audible.com. Audible.com is the Internet's leading provider of spoken audio entertainment. Macworld Podcast listeners can get a free audiobook now at www.audiblepodcast.com slash Macworld. Welcome to another Macworld Podcast. I'm your recently vacated host, Chris Breen, back from my vacation in Yosemite. Today's podcast largely focuses on applications. In our first interview segment, I speak with Macworld senior editor Rob Griffiths about his recent comparison of Apple's spreadsheet application numbers, which is part of iWork08, and Microsoft Excel 2008, which is part of, well, you know. Later in the podcast, executive online editor Philip Michaels discusses Adobe's online photo sharing and editing application, Photoshop Express, with senior reviews editor Jackie Dove. Before we get to those interviews, the usual news and commentary. In a slowish news week, we turn to areas of speculation, or at least speculation about speculation. Specifically, there's been a lot of talk about an iPhone that runs on a 3G network. If you look at the tea leaves, a few interesting things come together. For example, iPhones are not readily available from Apple. Some Apple retail stores are sold out of the iPhone on a routine basis, and the online Apple store suggests that you'll have to wait five to seven business days for a new iPhone to arrive. And it's been that way for a couple of weeks. Explanations for the lack of iPhones range from the gray market sucking available iPhones at such a rate that they're less available from legal channels to the somewhat more ominous suggestion that Apple is selling out its inventory based on the imminent arrival of an updated, presumably 3G iPhone. And then recently, AT&T Mobility CEO Ralph De La Vega mentioned that all of AT&T smart devices would be 3G in the next couple of months. A PC Magazine reporter asked him if that included the iPhone, and while he didn't exactly say, well, duh, he did respond, quote, Let me repeat what I said. I think that you're going to see our integrated devices be 3G devices in the not-too-distant future, and I mean months. That should be clear enough, unquote. But wait, there's more. The Wall Street Journal's Walt Mossberg, speaking at a tech conference in Washington, D.C., dropped this little tidbit in regard to mobile phones and their broadband limitations. Quote, And I'm not talking about the fact that iPhone isn't 3G. It will be 3G in 60 days. Unquote. When the web swooned over this bit of alleged gospel, Mossberg backed away from the claim and said it was based on the same speculation that everyone else seems to be hearing. <coughs> Weak. Excuse me. And of course, Apple blessed third-party iPhone applications are supposed to appear along with the iPhone 2.0 software update in June. And wouldn't that be a lovely time to roll out a new iPhone while we're at it? I mean, who wants brand spanking new software without also some accompanying new phone smell? Conventional wisdom is that a new iPhone, rather than one that's simply updated like the 16-gigabyte version that came out recently, would have to be pre-announced due to the requirement that the FCC approve the thing and make its approval known before it's released. What's at issue at this point is how long prior to the device's release does the information about it become publicly available. Some are suggesting that this can be done up to 45 days ahead of its release, which would fit with Mossberg's 60-day window. 
As for me, I don't much care. More often than not, I use the iPhone's web features when within proximity of a Wi-Fi network. But then I live in the land of the free and the home of the brave. And no, international listeners, I don't mean to imply that you're less free or brave than those living in the U.S. The truth is that I'm tied to my work and I'm a big cowardly baby. I've traveled outside our borders enough to know that free Wi-Fi does not flow like honey down the boulevards of other countries. For you, 3G is it, as Wi-Fi is horribly expensive and therefore less commonly found. To you, the 3G iPhone is a very big deal, and in the spirit of international cooperation and the off chance that the city of Copenhagen demands that I fly out for a private chat about all things Apple, I hope you get it sooner rather than later. As for those living in the U.S., what the heck, I hope it rolls out here too. Not because I'm interested so much in 3G, but rather I'd like to see what a new handset offers in terms of battery life, storage, Bluetooth capability, and voice quality, areas where I see the potential for improvement. And now Rob Griffiths and I explore the dynamic world of spreadsheets. In Macworld's May issue, you'll find the Office Suite Smackdown, a head-to-head comparison of iWork and Microsoft Office 2008. I'm joined today by Macworld senior editor Rob Griffiths, who penned the spreadsheet portion of the article examining the strengths and weaknesses of Excel and Apple's numbers. Thanks very much for joining me, Rob. You're welcome, Chris. All right, let's start at the beginning. Uh, both these programs have a ton of features, so obviously you can't compare feature by feature. But how did you set up the comparison between numbers and Excel? Uh, what we decided to do, actually, for all the programs in the Office Suite was to set up a sort of a typical project that uh, went through three phases, one of which might be sort of entry level, and then there's sort of a mid-grade, and then a more advanced version, but they were all sort of built on the same basic starting point. So in my case, I built a very simple spreadsheet that tracks sales by person, uh, and at the simplest level, that's really all it did. It had, you know, number of units sold and people down the left and added them together, and it might have run one average and then um, when we moved to the more advanced stage from my sort of intermediate spreadsheet, I added some charts and I added some product lines to the mix and I added some formulas that helped pick the most successful products and the most successful people and I did a couple of charts. And then for the advanced one, um, I actually created sort of an input sheet that you might use if you were distributing uh, the worksheet to somebody that isn't all that skilled with a spreadsheet application and did some work with, again, more complex formulas to look up names and dates and put them in different places and uh, just generally sort of clean things up um, and sort of took it there from, you know, what, it, what was an ugly row and column oriented spreadsheet into sort of something that would be a finished product that you could use even if you didn't have much experience with uh, spreadsheet applications. All right, so in what areas did Excel excel? Well, uh, Excel excelled (laughs) in many areas. And by the way, I really, really don't like the uh, trend in naming programs after generic nouns. For instance, talking about numbers is very hard. (laughs) Um, Well, we'll just use capital N and small n then. Right, okay. So in uh, in general, what you see with Excel is you see a program that's had 20 years gestation against numbers, which is maybe, you know, from the time it was a concept, it's what, maybe three years old, but it's only been the market for six months or a year when to come out. Uh, geez. Anyway, so you have a very experienced program against a very young program, and there are areas where those differences show up. Uh, for instance, in Excel, when you copy a cell's contents, the cell is highlighted by a bunch of marching arrows, so you can see exactly what you've copied. So when you go to paste, you know what your source is. In numbers, you don't get any such highlight. So it's a little bit of, uh, did I copy A3 or did I copy H3? I can't remember. I'll paste it and see what shows up. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's sort of one difference when you're doing data entry. 
And another thing is when I, uh, what you can move cells around in both programs just by dragging and dropping, and that will move the cell from one cell to another, the right. cell's contents. When you do that in Excel, if you drop it on a cell that has data in it, you are warned that um, you're going to overwrite existing data and do you want to do this? And Numbers just goes and says, okay, I'll overwrite that, and it's gone. So Oops. little things like that as you're entering data make a big difference. Right. Well, you know, one thing I noticed is um, as I was looking at the story in the magazine, I saw you'd taken a couple of screenshots of charts, and I thought, oh, this one looks really good, and this one looks a little kind of generic. And I was surprised that the one that I thought was Numbers was actually Excel. Yes, the uh, the new version of Excel, uh, Excel 2008, has much much improved charting features over Excel 2004 and prior versions, and I would say comparable to Numbers. Not quite as easy to get at all the very nice looking graphs, but the one in the magazine was basically the default that came out when I said chart this, yeah. and that's basically how it came out. So I, I was quite impressed as well. I think they've they've definitely come a long way in their charting capabilities compared to where the they have, uh, have been in the past, which was a pleasant surprise. Yeah, because I know that whenever I look at, at a chart, I can almost always say, oh, yeah, that's Excel. Excel, yeah. It's really <laughs> dull. But yeah, good on it, Microsoft, for improving that stuff. Okay, so with, my, uh, with Office 2008, how big a deal is it to lose macro support in Excel? Uh, it really depends on who you are and how you use your spreadsheet programs, um, to be honest. Obviously, if you're just doing uh, sort of like the simple to medium stuff that's in the article, you're probably not going to notice it at all. I mean, it's it's something that you wouldn't have dealt with before, and the fact that it's not there now isn't going to bother you very much. But where it really comes into play, and I think the people it affects the most, are those that are sort of trying to push their spreadsheets to do more than simply be a repository for columns and rows of text and numbers. Uh, because using macros in Excel 2004, you could do some really powerful things. Um, just as one simple example, I have built a macro that helps me. Obviously, I write a lot of stuff for Macworld and a lot of hints blogs, and I try not to repeat myself, although it has happened. Um, I use an Excel spreadsheet that has a couple of macros built into it to extract data so that I can run searches essentially on, on my Excel spreadsheets that find the URLs for articles I've written and find the local file references and find um, in-print versions of articles. So doing that, I cannot actually use that spreadsheet in Excel 2008 because the macros don't run. So there's there's no compelling reason to use a spreadsheet to do that project. I can't save any time with it. Uh, and I think the other big place that it makes a difference is if you're in an office environment that uses Excel as an automation tool, a lot of the time macros can be used to help ease the data entry process. Yeah, and actually back when I was a uh, numbers geek, bean counter, finance type in my prior career, uh, we used templates with a lot of macros because what we had to do was we had to distribute budget templates to people that rarely, if ever, used Excel. And yet we wanted to ensure that the numbers they provided to us added up to what they were supposed to add up to and that they had values in all the cells they were supposed to have values in and they filled in the right columns. And more importantly, when we put together these things from 15 different department managers, we could just click a couple of macros and have them all combine and spread and merge and create our master document without having to do any work. And you can certainly do a lot of that with um, formulas, but there are some things that you simply really need the ability to take a macro and say, I want to take this cell right here if its value is this and add it. You know, Macros just let you add the, the programmability that you cannot get in any other manner. Right. Now, I would suspect that there are some people in the Macintosh business unit at Microsoft who might say, yes, but look, we have Apple Script support and we have Automator support. Uh, is that really a substitute for a macro? 
Well, Chris, they, um, they're not identical, and in some senses, they do overlap a little bit in that you can do some things with Apple Scripts under Automator that you could also do with macros. The biggest difference is that macros were sort of live, real-time, and they could modify your spreadsheet on the fly, whereas things done with Automator and Apple Script are more after the fact or for changing preferences and settings. But, for instance, using a macro, I could actually change Excel's menus. I could add drop-down menus that had interactivity to them and do different things based on what people picked from the drop-down menus, take them to completely different worksheets and pop up a menu that asks them to do something else. All those types of interactivity aren't going to be handled by AppleScript because AppleScript is sort of a, you know, you have to go to the menu and say, run this. So what you can't do and what I could do before, for instance, was based on a value in a cell, I could have a, a macro execute, uh, but only execute if that value were in that cell. Right. Okay, well, earlier we were talking about numbers being a 1.0 product and Excel's been around for 20 years. Um, does it numbers really feel like a, a 1.0 product or does it feel as fully baked as iWorks other components? It's an interesting question because if you were to look at it without knowing that Excel existed, uh, it's clearly not a 1.0 product. Um, but when you look at the fact that there is this other spreadsheet on the Mac, um, that's where I think it, fe- it begins to fall short. And in particular, the areas where numbers really starts to feel like a 1.0 product are when you try to feed it large models that Excel has no trouble handling whatsoever. Um, numbers, when you give it a large worksheet, and I mean large with you know thousands of rows and hundreds of columns, which is not unexpected in the world of spreadsheets, mm-hmm. um, numbers can really begin to bog down badly. And, and that's where it really kind of comes out that says, man, you know, there's probably some work to be done here optimizing how they handle large models. Whereas Excel, it, it's, it's fairly astonishing the amount of data you can feed it without having it slow down at all. Right. Okay, now there are people in the world, well, okay, specifically me, who avoid spreadsheets like the plague because, well, they're so spreadsheety. Uh, for those who have previously refused to open Excel except in emergencies, does Numbers offer a more welcoming interface and workflow? Oh, no doubt about it. And um, for people that only need essentially a one to two page worksheet and they don't need any of the advanced um, formulas, uh, I recommend numbers heartily. It it takes spreadsheet production to a whole new level. And one of the things that it does that I was actually sort of hoping to see mimicked somewhat in Excel 2008 was this ability to have different grids of numbers on a page. And it's kind of hard to explain in audio, but, you know, if you open Excel, you're greeted with, like you said, a spreadsheet. It's a monolith of rows and columns and little cells to put numbers in. And you open numbers and you can essentially be greeted by a blank page onto which you can drag different grids of number, uh, different grids. And those grids can be aligned or not aligned however you like. So one of the challenges in Excel is if you want columns that don't necessarily want to line up, it can actually be harder to do. And in numbers, it's pretty simple because you just drag in another grid and place it wherever you want to. So the flexibility and the ease of combining grids with text, with objects, with drop shadows and transparency, all those things Apple does very well. They did very well. And if you look at their pre-made templates, they do things that would take me, even with you know 20 years of Excel experience, would take me hundreds of hours to build some of those templates, and they probably still wouldn't work quite as slickly as they do in numbers. So yeah, I think there's no doubt about it. If somebody's just getting started and they aren't in the business of working with numbers, little lowercase numbers, I think capital case numbers is a great way to go. Okay. So the flip side then is how ready is numbers for the workplace? So is it the kind of program you want to run just at home or could you run it in the office without being embarrassed or sort of, you know, covering your monitor with your sweater? 
Um, I think you could certainly run it in the office, but again, it's going to depend on how much data you feed it and what you're trying to do with it. The larger and more complex your model gets, the more you'll begin to feel the limitations of numbers. There are some formulas it doesn't have. It slows down dramatically, as I said, as it gets larger. And uh, what, like one of the things, uh, Excel has like nine different rules for flagging potential errors in cells. Um, numbers essentially has one, and those you know errors in terms of this number doesn't look like these other numbers nearby it and that kind of stuff. So cell auditing and stuff is a little stronger in Excel than it is in numbers. So you know if your needs in the office are pretty simple and you want to track, I don't know, the employees in and out status Mm -hmm. and you want it to be something that you could put up in a very nice looking chart that gets posted on the board every morning, numbers is clearly going to do that very simply and make it look very nice and with a lot less work than it would take in Excel. Um, You know, if you want to use it to track a 20-person sales force working in 15 regions selling 10 products, I probably at this point would pick Excel just because that's going to be the kind of spreadsheet that could grow and morph over time into something very large. Okay, so what about uh, running both? So if I create something in numbers, how easy is it to flip it back and forth between numbers and Excel? It's somewhat easy, and that that flexibility and layout that I just talked about is actually one of the causes of the difficulty in going back and forth, because in numbers, you can have five different worksheet grids on one physical page of paper, Mm -hmm. but Excel just has this concept of the monolithic blob of cells. So when you import a numbers document, or, or more correctly, export from numbers into Excel format, what numbers does is takes each of those blocks of grids that you've put on one page and turns them into a different tab in a workbook in Excel. So you'll get all of your data and you'll get all of your formulas, assuming you haven't used any numbers-specific formulas, but you will have a large job in front of you to recreate the look and feel of your numbers document in Excel. Um, Going the other direction is simpler because typically the you know, it will take each tab of the worksheet and make it a page in numbers. So numbers can open Excel worksheets fairly easily. Excel can't directly open numbers documents, and if you export from numbers, you're going to have to do some reformatting to get them to look right in Excel. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, without completely giving away the plot or the ending of this story, it sounds like Excel still comes out on top, and, and perhaps by a wide margin. Yeah, and it you know, and it, it's a very hard thing to write, obviously, because we're writing uh, from one perspective for audience members that cover the gamut from no experience to twenty years of experience. So hopefully, everybody can read it and take away what they need to take away based on their experience level. And that's kind of why we wrote it with you know this three tiered approach. And like I said earlier, um, Numbers is not a bad product, even if Excel does come out as the winner. And I do, I, I have my father using Numbers actually, and he's never liked using Excel. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think the only time you will really get frustrated with numbers is as you start to get bigger, larger, and more complex models. But uh, it's it's a new paradigm in spreadsheets, and I'm actually really looking forward to what they may do in version whatever they want to call it, 1.5, who knows. Right. Okay, well, those who do wish to read it uh, can find the Office Suite Smackdown and Rob's analysis in the May issue of Macworld, and Macworld.com will begin publishing segments of the feature online next week. Be sure to check it out, and thanks very much for joining me, Rob. You're welcome, Chris. Before we turn to our discussion of Photoshop Express, a word from our sponsor, Audible.com. Audible.com is the leading provider of digital spoken word entertainment, offering over 40,000 audiobooks for your iPod. Get a free audiobook download when you try the service at www.audiblepodcast.com slash macworld. Check out great titles like I Was or The Second Coming of Steve Jobs with your free audiobook credit. 
This is a special offer for Macworld Podcast listeners. So to get your free audiobook, visit www.audiblepodcast.com slash Macworld. Now Macworld's Philip Michaels and Jackie Dove discuss Photoshop Express. Adobe has long been the leader for digital imaging on the Mac, and now it has a new image editing service. The difference this time is that it's on the web, not on your desktop. It's Photoshop Express, and our senior reviews editor, Jackie Dove, has been putting it through its paces. She's kind enough to take some time this afternoon to talk to me about it. Jackie, how are you? I'm great, thanks. Good to, good to hear. Now, uh, Photoshop Express, we've written a little bit about it on the website, but I was hoping that we could tell the listeners of the Macworld podcast a little bit more about it. Uh, specifically, let's start off with talking about which of the other Photoshop pro- products that people might have used, which of those is uh, Express most similar to? Well, it's, it's probably similar to mostly all of them in various ways. You've got the high-level pro apps and Photoshop, CS3, and Lightroom, and it has some of the tools that um, it's using or derived actually from Photoshop or the idea of Photoshop CS3 and also some of the management capabilities are um, derived somewhat similarly to Lightroom. Then you have something even a little bit more similar to it, which would be Photoshop Elements. Now, that's for the non-professional crowd, but it's it's still for people who want to tinker with their photographs and, and people who want to spend some time with them. But a lot of the tools are also, um, you, you could find some derivatives from Elements as well. And as we know, Elements and Photoshop CS3 are similar themselves. And then down toward the end, you have the mass users of Express, which are basically people who are not going to download software, uh, not going to install software on their computers, and just want to have something to uh, improve their photographs so that they can shoot them online quickly for other people to see. So there's lots of similarities between Adobe's entire life Line of image editing products, um, and and the tools that are in in Express are basically derived from Photoshop and Express. So, given all that, then um, who is the ideal audience for Photoshop Express? Um, Adobe is targeting the mass audience. Um, this is the cell phone shooter, the point-and-shoot camera shooter, uh, people who are out there in the field. They're trying to communicate with their friends. They want to put something quickly online for people to see right away. So if I'm a, if I'm a hobbyist, I, I recently went on a, a trip with my wife. We went to Virginia. I took some photos there with my digital camera. Is this going to be a service that appeals to me, or is it more of a service? I'm on the go. I have I have my cell phone camera. I take a shot there. I, I edit it. I put it up on Facebook. Uh, that's probably more the audience that Adobe's appealing to with Express. But certainly, a trip to Virginia that you might want to put on your Facebook album or something like that—that that would definitely be something that you could work on in Express. And I think the thing that people have to really understand about Express is that there's a lot of photo editing capabilities in it. Um, you can do some basic things, but you can also do some very nice saturation improvements and touch-ups and red eye removal and exposure corrections and a lot of the things that you could do in Elements or even in Photoshop, you can still do in Express. So it really all depends on how much you want to work. 
Great. And you mentioned some of the tools in there. How different is it from from using a desktop photo editor? Well, there's not as many of them, but there certainly is a nice interface that lets you visually see, probably in a better way sometimes than even Photoshop CS3, exactly what you're doing. There's there's very um, exact previews in, in a film strip format, which I found really helpful and fun to use. And interestingly, they were, you know, nice and quick to use on online. And that was rather surprising because, as we know, with Internet connections, things can lag sometimes. But I found the performance very, very good. And you'd have the, um, the film strip interface. You would move your cursor over the film strip. You would see the preview underneath to see how the edits would affect your image before you do anything. And when you see something you like, you can click it, you can you know, change the image to the point in the film strip that appeals to you, and if you don't like it, you can undo it very easily. Walk me through um, getting started with Express. How do I get my photos, say, from on my camera, off of my camera, and onto the web? Um, well, first of all, you would have... Um, you would upload your photos, for one thing. There, there is a photo uploader capability. Um, you would get your photos onto the Adobe server, and then you would, uh, you, well, actually, I think I should start from the beginning. You would set up an account there so that you have a photo space, and then you would upload your photos. And now, after let me, that, let me just jump in there. Could you, you mentioned that there's an Adobe uploader? Could I also use, say, upload photos that I already have in iPhoto or another another desktop application? Yes, absolutely, and, and that's how I had been testing it. I actually uploaded photos um, from from my desktop. Okay. And and it would it would navigate to whatever folders you have on your desktop or in your hard drive uh, to get those photos up online. So it would be just like uploading anything else. Okay, got it, got it. Um, the current compatibility is with Facebook, which we've mentioned. There's also compatibility with Picasa and PhotoBucket. How about uh, Flickr? When is uh, Flickr compatibility expected? Well, um, they, they haven't been very exact about when the deal with Flickr will be sealed. So um, it will be soon, and um, soon is the watchword for Adobe with Flickr. Um, there's no exact target date that they have cited just yet. Okay, so given all of this, what have your impressions of Photoshop Express been as you've gotten a chance to use the service? Um, I really like it. Uh, it's very fast. It's um, The interface is, is very pleasant. There's lots of tools. Uh, it's easy to use. Uh, the different views are very nice. Uh, you can have a, a grid view or you can have a, a film strip view. Uh, there's lots of information about your photographs. There's the exit data, uh, when your photograph was taken, um, you know, the um, the the f-stop that you were using, your aperture opening, all of those kinds of, um, you know, informative things are on the side if you want to see them or you can hide them if you want to. Um, there's a, there's a, a very nice, simple interface. It really doesn't take a lot to figure out how to use it, which, in fact, is how it was designed. So those are uh, some of the strengths. Obviously, this is a beta product, which I'm not sure if we've we've mentioned yet at this point. Yes. What is Adobe going to have to uh, focus on on improving before it 
releases a final version of Express, what would you like to see changed as we go through this beta process? Well, um, there are definitely some things that do need to be improved. First of all, I think a lot of people don't really care for the fact that they can't change the, the color scheme. There's a dark green background. It's got white lettering. Uh, for some people, that's not very appealing. Uh, with all of the other um, photo management and editing tools that we have for the Mac, you can definitely change, like um, Bridge, for example, you can change, or Lightroom, I believe, you can change. Uh, certainly iPhoto, you can change. So that would be really nice to have that kind of flexibility uh, for, for um, Express. And then um, also, there's uh, certain uh, operability issues. For instance, I, I mentioned in the, the story that I wrote about it that you can't use the back button. And that's something that I went to all the time because obviously you're working in a browser. So it would be really nice if they could add some functionality to the back button. Uh, they haven't said they were going to do that, but um, that would be nice at least from my perspective. Um, there should be a contextual search feature that does not exist right now. Basically, there is a, a help button which gives you a pull-down menu leading to the forums and leading to an FAQ. And basically, that's not enough. So they need to improve uh, the help menu and the searching for different topics, different help topics. Um, there also, there's another issue about size. If you want to, for instance, edit a photo and then bring it back down to your desktop at a certain size, say to print, which you know you certainly can do. Um, there's no real way at present to figure out what size your photo is. So that would be very nice if they could add something like that. And I guess the last thing that really kind of struck me as needing a little bit more help was the slideshow feature. They've got a fairly rudimentary slideshow. They've got a little bit of variety, but certainly if you compare it with something like iPhoto, uh, there aren't enough transitions and, you know, different varieties of ways to do things with the slideshow. So that would be really nice. So basically, it's a matter of adding more flexibility into the program to add on to the features that they already have, you know, without making it too complicated and, and harder to use. Because that would seem to defeat the purpose of having this, right. this online photo editor that people are using to, to get their photos up quickly. Um, the other thing that Adobe was mentioning is that, um, for example, when they offer some of the paid versions that we don't know very much about them just yet, you would get, for instance, more than two gigabytes of online storage space, which, you know, isn't that much really uh, to begin with, but certainly for free, um, that is a very nice amount of space. And they haven't said anything about um, making it available to photos that are more than 10 megabytes, but that's also another limitation that they have in addition to it being JPEG only. So I'm suspecting that there will be some more flexibility added to that as well. Now, one thing that, that has changed has been the terms of service since Adobe launched the, the beta. What, what's happened there? Have you been following that uh, aspect of the story any? Well, uh, basically what I understand is that there was sort of this huge, broad set of rights that 
Adobe had claimed to all of the images that were posted on the service. And people objected to that rather strenuously, as we saw. And Adobe quickly turned around within a matter of days um, and had them rewritten to make them, first of all, easier to understand, and secondly, more reflective of what they would normally do with photos. They would not be owning your photos. They would not be having them um, owned in perpetuity, that kind of thing. Uh, basically, they, they simplified it, they defined their terms, and then they said, well, you know, it's just a matter of giving us enough rights that we can actually uh, take command of your photos, put them online, let you share them, and let you do the things that you want to do with them without giving us any exclusive rights or interests in those photos, either now or when you decided to, if you wanted to ever close your account, they would have no more jurisdiction over your images. And that was my understanding of it without studying the legal the legalities of it too much. Sure. And if, if nothing else, this entire um, episode with the um, with the terms of service shows that uh, Adobe is certainly uh, open to, to changing things around with Express and, and listening to uh, customer feedback on Express. Definitely. And they're, they're ready, willing, and waiting to, uh, to hear people's responses to it. And that was one of the reasons that they decided to release the public beta is because they, they knew it was a work in progress and they wanted, they didn't want to fill it up too much with, uh, features that they liked, but rather to, you know, put a, a basic product out there and to let the public just tear away at it and, you know, tell them what they wanted, what they didn't like, what they liked, what they wanted to see more of and what they wanted to get get rid of. And I guess one of the things that people immediately wanted to get rid of was the terms of service and, you know, have them revised to be, you know, a little more liberal and more to their liking and certainly more understandable. So uh, you mentioned earlier that the watchword with uh, adding face, uh, excuse me, flicker compatibility is, is soon. What's the watchword on when we'll be uh, past the beta process and when there'll be a, a final full release of Photoshop Express out there on the web? Uh, sometime in calendar year 2008, and that's all they'll say. Okay. And I, I guess the, the big question, whenever we have someone uh, give a first look and uh, uh test a beta beta version of a product is, uh, will you be using it when Photoshop Express goes final? Oh, sure. Um, I found it really convenient already. I think one of the most convenient things about it is the linking to the other services, Facebook, PhotoBucket, and Picasa. Um, when I started using Express, I already had a Facebook account and I already had a Picasa account. And so I had something there to base things on. And it was very interesting how, you know, it there was a small glitch when I first started using Facebook. It needed permissions and things like that. And once you got through all the click-throughs, then it was very easy to um, import your, well, so-called import your images from Facebook into the Photoshop Express um interface and work on your photos and edit them and do everything you wanted to do with them. And then all of your edits would then appear on, in your album on Facebook. And similarly with Picasa, I have a lot of albums on Picasa. They showed up right in the menu um, on the left-hand side of the interface. I could pick any album I wanted, uh, got all the pictures um, onto the screen, was able to do all my edits. And then when I was finished with editing everything, uh, the Picasa the albums were updated to my specifications. It 
was quite nice. And what you can do, of course, is when, when you only have, if you want to use the free service, if you only have two gigabytes, that's fine. You can move your photos off of um, a Adobe's Express website and onto the albums that you normally use and make room for new images. This talk of other services actually made me think of, of one final question here. How, how does Express compare to Picnic? Picnic, uh, as you, as you're well aware and as our listeners may be aware, we, uh, awarded an, uh, Editor's Choice Award, uh, just this past, uh, year for, uh, being a very good online photo editing service, uh, or photo, um, photo sharing service too. Um, how does it compare to Picnic? Well, it does compare to Picnic rather strongly. Um, it has the editing, it has the editing capabilities, which um, are very comparable to Picnic. Uh, Picnic has a few editing tweaks that um, Express does not have, and if is a lot of the special effects stuff, if that's the kind of thing that appeals to you, a picnic will have more of those things. Um, picnic also now has a paid version where you will get even more of their special effects and, and other things, uh, other editing capabilities as well. Uh, picnic also has a very strong photo sharing um, element to it. Uh, the thing that picnic doesn't have though is the hosting. Uh, you can make your own albums in Photoshop Express, and you can display them in Photoshop Express. You don't need to have, um, you know, say, Facebook or PhotoBucket or any of the other services or Picasa that it links to. Um, you can just go ahead and use Express all by itself. And, of course, after it gets out of beta and they start offering paid versions, you'll be able to get more space online. So it's, it's designed more to be of an end-to-end -end experience as opposed to, you know, simply editing and sharing, which is something that Facebook, that um, rather Picnic does very well. So um, Picnic will not host your photos, however. So there, there are differences there. And uh, the Express Beta is something that anyone can go and download now and take a part, or not download, but sign up for and, and be a part of. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Anybody can anybody can uh, sign in, you know, get an account, and uh, start editing photos. Well, we would certainly encourage everyone listening to go do that. Jackie, thank you for joining us this afternoon. Thank you very much, Phil. Okay, bye bye. And that wraps up this edition of the Macworld Podcast, sponsored by Audible.com. Audible.com is the Internet's leading provider of spoken audio entertainment. Macworld Podcast listeners can get a free audiobook now at www.audiblepodcast.com slash Macworld. I'd like to thank Rob Griffiths, Philip Michaels, Jackie Dubb, and of course you for listening. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to drop us a line at podcast at Macworld.com. Or you can leave us a voicemail at 415-520-9761. This is Chris Breen reminding you that you can find more Apple, Mac, iPod, iPhone, Apple TV, and technology news, views, and information at Macworld.com. Thanks very much for listening. See you next time.